Section 20 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 11, Under Escort to Herat, Part 1. Our party camps near a village not far from the river, but it takes us till after dark to reach the place, owing to ditches and overflow. A few miles of winding trails and intricate paths through the reedy river bottom next morning, and we emerge upon a flinty upland plain. At first, a horseman is required to ride immediately ahead of the bicycle, my untutored escort being evidently suspicious lest i might suddenly forge ahead and with the swiftness of a bird disappears from their midst as this leader in his ignorance occasionally stops right in the narrow path and considers himself in duty bound to limit my speed to that of the walking horses this arrangement quickly becomes very monotonous Appealing to Kiftan Sahib, I point out the annoyance of having a horse just in front, and promise not to go too far ahead. He points appealingly to a little leathern pouch attached to his belt. The pouch contains a letter to the governor of Herat, and he it is whom Mahmud Yusuf Khan expects to take back a receipt. The chief responsibility for my safe delivery rests upon his shoulders, and he is disposed to be abnormally apprehensive and suspicious. Reassuring him of my sincerity, he permits the horseman to follow along behind. When the condition of the road admits of my pushing ahead a little, this sowar canters along immediately behind, while the remainder of the party follow more leisurely. One of the party carries a skin of water, and, as the morning grows fearfully hot, frequent halts are made to wait for him and get a drink. Otherwise, we too are usually some distance ahead. These water vessels are merely goatskins, taken off with as little mutilation of the hide as possible. One of the legs serves as a faucet, and the tying or untying of a piece of string opens or closes the tap. It is the handiest imaginable contrivance for carrying liquids on horseback the tough pliant goatskin resisting any amount of hard usage and accommodating itself readily to the contour of the pack saddle or itself forming a soft enough seat to the rider near noon we reach the ruins of suleimanabad entirely deserted save by hideous gray lizards a foot long numbers of which scuttle off into their hiding places at our approach in the distance ahead are visible the black tents of a nomad camp the glowing, reflected heat of the stony desert produces an unquenchable thirst, and the generous bowls of cool, acidulous doke obtained in the tents are quaffed most eagerly by the entire party. The solicitude of Kaftai Sahib, as displayed on my behalf, is quite amusing, not to say affecting. While the others are attending to their horses, he squats down before me, underneath the little goat-haired tent, and gazes at me with an attention so close that one might imagine him afraid lest I should mysteriously change into some impalpable spirit and float away. The nomads themselves appear to be amiably disposed, intent chiefly on supplying our wants and fulfilling the traditions of tented hospitality. They look wild enough but, withal, pleasant and intelligent. 
Kiftan Sahib, however, watches every movement of the stalwart nomads with keen interest, and small power of penetration is required to see that apprehension, if not positive suspicion, enters very largely into his thoughts concerning them and myself. A howling wind and dust storm comes careering across the plain, creating a wild scene, and black cloud banks gather and pile up ominously in the west. The threatened rainstorm, however, passes off with a pyrotechnic display of great brilliance, and the evening air lowers to a refreshing temperature as we stretch ourselves out on new moods, fifty yards away from the tents. Kifton Sahib spreads his own couch on the right side of mine, and the red-whiskered chief of the Sowars occupies the left. Waking up during the night, I am somewhat taken by surprise at finding one of my escorts standing guard over me with fixed bayonet. This extraordinary precaution appears to me at the time as being altogether superfluous. While recognizing these nomads as lawless and fanatical, I should nevertheless have no hesitation in venturing alone among them. The morning star is just soaring above the eastern horizon, and the feeble rays of Luna's half-averted face are imparting a ghostly glimmer of light when I am awakened from a sound sleep. The horses have all been saddled and packed, and everybody is ready to start. Daylight comes on apace, and, finding the trail hard and reasonably smooth, I am happily able to soari, and not only able to ride, but to forge right ahead of the party. The country is level and open, and uninhabited, so that Kiftan Sahib is far less apprehensive than he was yesterday. I am perhaps a couple of miles ahead when I come to a splendid, large, irrigating canal, evidently conveying water from the Harood down across the desert to the low, cultivable lands near the Fura Rood. The water is three feet deep, and I revel in the luxury of a cooling and refreshing bath until overtaken by the escort. The plain, heretofore hard, now changes into loose sand and gravel, and the trail becomes quite obliterated. In addition to these undesirable changes, the wind commences blowing furiously from the north, making it absolutely impossible to ride. Rounding the base of an abutting mountain, we emerge upon the grassy lowlands of the Harood in the vicinity of Subzowar. Subzowar is a sort of way-station between Fura and Herat, the only inhabited place, except tents, on the whole journey. It is on the west side of the Harood, and the broad swift stream is full to overflowing, a turgid torrent rushing along at a dangerous pace. After much shouting and firing of guns, a score of villagers appear on the opposite bank, and several of them come wading and swimming across. They seem veritable amphibians, capable of stemming the tide that well-nigh sweeps strong horses off their feet. The river is fordable by following a zigzag course well known to the local watermen. One of them carries the bicycle safely across on his head, and others lead the sowar's horses by the bridle. When all the Afghans but Kiftan Sahib have been assisted over, the strongest horse of the party is brought back for my own passage. A dozen natives are made to form a close cordon about me to rescue me in case of misadventure, while one leads the horse by his bridle and another steadies him by holding on to his tail. 
Kiftan Sahib himself brings up the rear, and, as the rushing waters deepen around us, he abjures me to keep a steady seat, and, in a voice that almost degenerates into an apprehensive whine, he mutters, The receipt, Sahib, the receipt. A ripple of excitement occurs in the middle of the river by one of the men being swept off his feet and carried downstream, and, although he swims like a duck, the treacherous undercurrent sucks him under several times. It looks as though he would be drowned. A number of his comrades race down the bank and plunge in to swim to his rescue, but he finally secures footing on a submerged sandbank, and, after resting a few minutes, swims ashore. The remainder of the day and the night are passed in tents near Subzowar, it being very evidently against Afghan social etiquette for strangers to take shelter within the confines of the village itself. Whether from their knowledge of the unsuitableness of the country ahead, or from a new spasm of apprehension concerning their responsibility, does not appear. But in the morning, Kiftan Sahib and the chief of the Sowars insist upon me mounting a horse and handing the bicycle over to the tender mercies of the person in charge of the Namud pack-horse. They point in the direction of Herat, and deliver themselves of a marvelous quantity of deprecatory pantomime. My own impressions is that having recrossed the Harood, the only great obstacle in the path of a wheelman between Fura and Herat, their abnormally suspicious minds imagine that there is now nothing to prevent me taking wings and outdistancing them to the latter place. Finding them determined, and moreover nothing loath to try a horse for a change on the back stretch, I take the wheel apart and distribute fork, backbone, and large wheel among the sowars. The only fit place for the latter is on the top of the namuds and blankets on the spare pack-horse, and, before starting, I see to fastening it securely on top of the load. This pack-horse is a powerful black stallion that puts in a good share of his time trying to attack the other horses. Owing to this uncontrollable pugnacity, he is habitually led along at some considerable distance from the party, generally to the rear. The person in charge of him is a young negro as black and proportionately powerful as himself. Wild and ferocious as is the stallion, he is a civilized and mild-mannered animal compared with his manager. In the matter of facial expression and intellectual development, this uncivilized descendant of Ham is first cousin to a wild gorilla, and it is not without certain misgivings that I leave the web-like bicycle wheel in his charge. He has been a very interesting study of uncivilization all along, and his bump of destructiveness is as large as an orange. The military Afghans, one and all, impress me as being especially created to destroy the fruits of other people's industry and thrift, whether it be in wearing out clothes and shoes made in England, or devouring the substance of the peaceful villagers of their own territory and this untamed darky fairly bristles with the evidence of his capacity as a destroyer. Everything about him is in a dilapidated condition. The leathern scabbard of his sword is split halfway up, revealing a badly notched and rusted blade. An orangutan, fresh from the jungles of Sumatra, could scarcely display less intelligence concerning human handicraft than he. He bubbles over with laughter at seeing anything upset or broken growls sullenly at receiving uncongenial orders, calls on Allah, and roars threateningly at the stallion, all in the same breath. 
no wonder I ride ahead, feeling somewhat apprehensive. And yet the wheel looks snug and safe enough on top of the big pile of soft new moods. The day's march is long and dreary, through a country of desert wastes and stony hills. The only human habitation seen is a small cluster of tents near some wells of water. The people seem overjoyed at the sight of travelers, and come running to the road with their camera buns full of little hard balls of sun-dried mast. We fill our pockets with these, and nibble and chew them as we ride along. They are pleasantly sour, containing great thirst-quenching properties, as well as being very nourishing. The sun goes down and dusk settles over our trail, and still the chief of the Sowars and Kiftan Sahib lead the way. Many of the horses are pretty badly fagged. They have had nothing to eat all day and next to nothing to drink, and the party are straggling along the trail for a couple of miles back. At length, lights are observed twinkling in the darkness ahead. Half an hour later, we dismount in a nomad camp, and one after another, the remainder of the party come straggling in, some of them leading their horses. Both men and animals are well-nigh overcome with fatigue. The shrill neighing of the ferocious and spirited black stallion is heard as he approaches and realizes that he is coming into camp. He is a glorious specimen of a horse. Neither hunger nor thirst can curb his spirit. He is carrying far the heaviest load of the party, yet he comes into camp at ten o'clock after hustling along over stones and sand since before daylight without food or water, neighing loudly and ready to fight all the horses within reach. The chief of the sowars goes out to superintend the unloading of the black stallion, and soon I hear him addressing the negro in angry tones, supplementing his reproachful words with several resounding blows of his riding whip. The wild darkey's disapproval of these proceedings finds expression in a roar of pain and fear that would do justice to a yearling bull being dragged into the shambles. The cause of this turmoil shortly turns up in the shape of my wheel, with no less than eleven spokes broken and the rim considerably twisted out of shape. Kiftan Sahib surveys the damaged wheel a moment, draws his own rawhide from his cammerbund, and rises to his feet. With a hoarse cry of alarm, the negro vanishes into the surrounding gloom. The next moment is heard his eager chuckling laugh, the spontaneous result of his lucky escape from Kiftan Sahib's vengeful rawhide. Kiftan Sahib keeps a desultory lookout for him all the evening, but the wary negro is more eagerly watchful than he, and during supper-time he hovers perpetually about the encircling wall of darkness, ready to vanish into its impenetrable depths at the first aggressive demonstration. The explanation of the negro is that the black horse lay down with his load. The wheel presents a well-nigh ruined appearance, and I retire to my couch in a most unenviable frame of mind. Lying awake for hours, pondering over the probability of being able to fix it up again at Herat. One of our party of stragglers has failed to come in, and a couple of nomads start out about 2 a.m. to try and find him, but neither absentee nor searchers turn up at daybreak, and so we pull out without him. The wind blows raw and chilly from the north as we depart at early dawn, and the men muffle themselves up in whatever wraps they happen to have. Unwilling to trust the wheel further in the charge of the negro, I carry it myself, resting it on one stirrup and securing it with a rope over my shoulder. 
It is a most awkward thing to carry on horseback, but unhandy though it be, I regret not having so carried it the whole way from Subzoar. Our route leads through a dreary country, much the same character as yesterday, but we pass a pool of very good water about midday, and meet three men driving laden pack-horses from Herat. They are halted and questioned at great length concerning the contents of their packages, whither they are bound, and whence they come, and their firearms are examined and commented upon. The members of our party appear to address them with a very domineering spirit, as though wantonly reveling in the sense of their own numerical superiority. On the other hand, the three honest travellers comport themselves with what looks like an altogether unnecessary amount of humility during the interview, and they seem very thankful and relieved when permitted to take their departure. The significance of all this, I imagine, is that my escort were sorely tempted to overhaul the effects of the weaker party, and see if they had any toothsome eatables from the bazaars of Herat, and the latter, justly apprehensive of these designs on their late purchases, consider themselves fortunate in escaping without being ruthlessly looted. Toward evening we pass a comparatively new cemetery on a knoll. No signs of human habitation are about, and Kiftan Sahib, in response to my inquiries, explains that it is the graveyard of a battlefield. Several times during the afternoon we lose the trail. We seem to be going across an almost trailless country, and more than once have to call a halt while men are sent to the summit of some neighboring hill to survey the surrounding country for landmarks. At dark we pitch our camp in a grassy hollow, where the horses are made happy with heaps of pooled bottom grass. Neither trees nor houses are anywhere in sight, but the chief of the sowars and another man ride away over the hills, and late at night return with two men carrying bread and mast and fresh goat milk enough to feed the whole hungry party. We make a leisurely start next morning. The reason of the dalliance being that we are but a few farsacks from Herat. The country develops into undulating grassy upland prairie, the greensward being thickly spangled with yellow flowers. A two-hour's ride brings us to a camp of probably not less than one hundred tents. Large herds of camels are peacefully browsing over the prairie numbers of them being females rejoicing in the possession of woolly youngsters whose uncouth but tender proportions are swathed in old quilts and numuds to protect them from the fierce rays of the sun sheep are being sheared and goats milked by men and boys some of the women are baking bread some are jerking skin churns suspended on tripods vigorously back and forth and others are preparing balls of mast for drying in the sun the whole camp presents a scene of picturesque animation. From the busy nomad camp, the trail seems to make a gradual ascent until, on the morning of April 30th, we arrive at the bluff-like termination of a rolling upland country, and, behold, spread out below is the famous valley of Herat. Like a panorama suddenly opened up before me is the charmed stretch of country that has time and again created such a stir in the political and military circles of England and Russia. The famous Gate to India, about which the two greatest empires of the world have sometimes almost come to blows. Several populous villages are scattered about the valley within easy range of human vision.
the hairy rood now bursting its natural boundaries under the stimulus of the spring floods glistens broadly at intervals like a chain of small lakes the fortress of herat is dimly discernible in the distance beyond the river probably about twenty miles from our position it is rendered distinguishable from other masses of mud-brown habitations by a cluster of tall minarets reminding one of a group of factory chimneys the whole scene as viewed from the commanding view of our ridge embraces perhaps four hundred square miles of territory about one-tenth of this appears to be under cultivation the remainder being of the same stony desert-like character as the average camel-thorn dashed doubtless a good share of this latter might be reclaimed and rendered productive by an extensive system of irrigating canals but at present no incentive exists for enterprise of this character in its present state of cultivation the valley provides an abundance of food for the consumption of its inhabitants and as yet the demand for exportation is limited to the simple requirements of a few thousand tributary nomads the orchards and green areas about the villages render the whole scene as usual beautiful in comparison with the surrounding barrenness but that is all compared with our own green hills and smiling valleys the valley of herat would scarcely seem worth all the noise that has been made about it there has been a great amount of sentiment wasted in eulogizing its alleged beauty of its wealth and commercial importance in the abstract i should say much exaggeration has been indulged in still there is no gainsaying that it is a most valuable strategical position which if held by either england or russia would exercise great influence on central asian and indian affairs such are my first impressions of the herat valley and a sojourn of some ten days in one of its villages leaves me conjectures about the same a few miles along a stony and gradually descending trail and we are making our way across the usual checkered area of desert patches abandoned fields and old irrigating ditches that so often tell the tale of decay and retrogression in the east these outlying evidences of decay however soon merge into green fields of wheat and barley poppy gardens and orchards and flowing ditches and two hours after obtaining the first view of herat finds us camped in a walled apricot garden in the important village of rosebaugh overtopping our camping ground are a pair of dilapidated brick minarets attached to what kiftan sahib calls the jamie mesjid and which he furthermore volunteers was erected by genghis khan the minarets are of circular form and one is broken off fifteen feet shorter than its neighbor in the days of their glory they were mosaicked with blue green and yellow glazed tiles but nothing now remains but a few mournful-looking patches of blue surviving the ravages of time and decay pigeons have from time to time deposited grains of barley on the dome and finding sustenance from the gathered dirt and the falling rains they have sprouted and grown and dotted the grand old mosque with patches of green vegetation one corner of the orchard is occupied by a stable, to the flat roof of which I betake myself shortly after our arrival to try and ascertain my bearings, and see something of the village. High walls rise up between the roofs of the houses and divide one garden from another, so that precious little opportunity exists for observation immediately around, and from here not even the tall minarets of Herat are visible the adjacent houses are mostly beehive roofed 
and within the little gardens attached the soil is evidently rich and productive. Pomegranate, almond, and apricot trees abound, and produce a charming contrast to the prevailing crenellated mud walls. A very conspicuous feature of the village is a cluster of some half-dozen venerable cedars. The stable roof provides sleeping accommodation for the chief of the sowars, Kiftan Sahib, and myself. The remainder of the party curl themselves up beneath the apricot trees below. During the night, one of the sowars, an old fellow whose morose and sulky disposition has had the effect of rendering him socially objectionable to his comrades on the march from Fura, comes scrambling on the roof and in loud tones of complaint addresses himself to Kiftan Sahib's peacefully snoozing proportions. His midnight eruption consists of some grievance against his fellows, perhaps some such wanton act of injustice as appropriating his blanket or stealing his timbaku, tobacco. The only satisfaction he obtains from his superior takes a form of angry upbraidings for daring to disturb our slumbers and, continuing his complaints, Kiftan. Sahib springs up from the beneath his red blanket and administers several resounding cuffs. Having meted out this summary interpretation of Afghan petty justice, Kiftan Sahib resumes his blanket, and the old sowar comes and squats alongside my own rude couch, and endeavors to heal his wounded spirit by muttering appeals to Allah. His savage groanings render it impossible for me to go to sleep, and several times I motion him away, but he affects not to take any notice. Determined to drive him away, I rise up hastily as though about to attack him, a piece of strategy that causes him to scramble off the roof far quicker than he climbed on. His fit of rage lasts through the night, finding vent in mutterings that are heard long after his hurried departure from my vicinity. And in the morning he is seen perched in a corner of the wall by himself, still angry and unappeased. End of section 20 Recording by William Tomko.